All right, grab a seat. Good morning, Bjorn. Come on in. Bjorn, I got a seat saved just for you right next to Anthony up here. Hey, yeah, yeah, you know, actually, we, I believe that Darlene was actually contacted by McGregor's camp for the, his next bout. He's going to do a little practice bobbing and weaving from her kisses. So my name's Eric. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're so glad that you've, been, you, you've chosen to be here with us. We are in the middle of a series that we're calling True North, and the point of this series is just a recognition that we live in a culture and a time that is constantly changing. I mean, you've got... Uh, morals and values that are shifting according to the society's interpretation of what they should be. We've got definitions of things like marriage and, and gender that are being kind of transformed before our very eyes. And in the midst of this, there's all of these, not just black and white things, but there are gray things that we're going, how do I love my neighbor? And how do I love each of them differently? Because I recognize they're different individuals. And so how do I interact with this neighbor in this circumstance when it's not 100% clear? And in the midst of that, we've just said, you know, how can we, as Christ followers, continue to stay focused? And whenever a navigator in the open sea is trying to make his way through uncharted territory, the first thing that they need is a a fixed reference point, something that doesn't change. Whereas the wind and the waves is constantly changing, that fixed reference point becomes the thing that helps them focus in, zero in, get their bearing and then kind of uh, focus their energies. And we recognize that that fixed reference point in our life is our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, you know, King Solomon in, uh, in Proverbs 3, verses 5 through 6 said, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. In other words, with all of your being. And don't rely or lean on your own understanding. In everything you do, acknowledge Him. Trust him, submit to him, orient your life and your efforts around him, and he will make your paths straight. But of course, that's easier said than done. We all say, yeah, I want to follow God. But how do you bring a triune God who is holy and transcendent down into our ever-changing reality? How can we begin to orient our lives around him? And so this series has been exploring some of the tools that he has given us to do just that. We talked about the Bible, God's word, that he breathed into existence through people some thousands of years ago. And he said, this is a tool. It's kind of like a spiritual sextant that brings the the heavenly fixed points down into our reality so we can begin to understand the heart of our father, God. And it's a tool that he uses to begin to shape our hearts so that we can be reflections of him. But it's not only this, he's also invited us into relationship with him in a regular basis. He says, listen, spend time with me, get to know me. Jesus said, my sheep, they know my voice and they follow me. And the only way we can begin to know and recognize his voice when he speaks to us and when he calls us is if we are regularly spending time with him, meditating on his word and in prayer. So we've talked about that. And then last week, We had Jamie Pappas, one of our missionaries, sharing about the importance, the crucial role that the Holy Spirit plays in our lives. Because it's one thing to say, I want to follow God. It's yet another thing to do it. And we cannot, by our own strength, actually do that. I I got to officiate um, Jimmy and Heather's wedding. Jimmy and Heather are our youth pastors. They got married on Friday. We're very excited. Yeah. I'm a little disappointed they're not here. I think their priorities are totally jacked. I'm just joking. 
Um, but I told them in the midst of that time, I said, listen, guys, you declare your desire constantly to follow God, but, it, but the reality is you can't do it by your own strength. You desperately need our God to help us. And the way that God has done that is by giving us his Holy Spirit, the same spirit, mind you, that empowered Jesus throughout his three years of ministry. Right at the beginning of his public ministry, Jesus was baptized and God's spirit came upon him because he had emptied himself of his godhood so that he could take on human flesh and become like us. And God's spirit then empowered him to do the things that he did. And that same spirit that did all of those miracles and helped Jesus walk on water and gave Jesus wisdom and discernment to, to speak the truth that he needed to and ultimately raised Jesus from the dead. That same spirit lives and resides in each and every one of us. And when we give our hearts to God, it's as if God says, listen, this is one is mine, and he gives us his Holy Spirit as a stamp of ownership. This one belongs to me. But it's more than just his mark of ownership. It's also his empowerment for us. That Holy Spirit becomes for us our comforter and our counselor, our encourager when we have the enemy speaking lies into our mind. And he says, no, 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 no. He defends us from those things. And he convicts us. He doesn't condemn us, God bless you, Robin, but he convicts us of those things. The enemy loves to condemn. The Holy Spirit convicts. So if you're feeling a lot of condemnation, even in anything I'm saying today, that's probably the enemy going, oh, let me go ahead and twist even my own words. But if you feel conviction, that's the Holy Spirit working within you. Um, And so those are some of the tools that we have been given. Now, the Holy Spirit is one of those tools that is given to believers when we say yes to Jesus Christ. But there is another tool that God gives us to help navigate life on this planet And it's not just reserved for those of us who are Christ followers. It's a tool he actually gives to every man, woman, and child who has ever walked the planet. And that tool that he gives us is his conscience. And I know, I kind of know that when I say that, some of you automatically check out. (sighs) The conscience? Seriously? If I want to talk about my conscience, I'll listen to Dr. Phil, Eric. Okay? We came here to hear about the Bible. All right? We don't need any of that pop psychology stuff. And quite honestly, as I was preparing this series and I was thinking about the different tools he's given us, and I came to the conscience, I I automatically just kind of pushed it to arm's length because to me it feels a little bit too much like Jiminy Cricket. We need to always let our conscience be our guide. And I'm like, yeah, nice try, Walt. But but really, we're going to let the Holy Spirit be our guide. And yet, there's a reason why our culture Even non-believing culture recognizes the importance of a conscience because it is a tool our creator has imbued each and every one of us with. It is a tool that he has given us to help us navigate through some of these gray areas in life and saying, how should I proceed? Because the, the conscience acts almost like it's an internal faculty that helps us determine the direction we should go when we come to one of these gray areas. It's, it helps us make sense of, of the moral, um, our morality inside. But I need to be really clear about this. Our conscience is not the source of our moral system. That comes from our Father God. It's imparted to us in many ways through His Word that reveals His heart to us. Our conscience is simply the filter that helps us recognize whether or not 
we're actually obeying it, submitting to it, and following it. Does that make sense? Because it's a big distinction. I'm not suggesting your conscience is your God. I'm not suggesting your conscience is the Holy Spirit. Our conscience is an internal faculty that every man, woman, and child on this planet has. And it is a wonderfully important part of navigating life on this planet. And yet, it is also limited. Now, I was thinking, how can we understand what the the, the conscience is like? And I was thinking, it's a lot like a compass. I, I did Boy Scouts for one year. Never got a single merit badge. I almost got my wood carving merit badge until I sawed the end of my finger off. And apparently they don't give out merit badges for self-mutilation, so I didn't even get that one. So I never really fully understood compasses, but I pretty much figured they're they're self-explanatory, right? You just hold them flat, and they tell you which way to go, and you go, okay, which way is north? All right, there's north, and I needed to go southeast, so that's this way, and then I walk that direction. I figured that that is all there is to it, and there's nothing else I need to know, so come on, give me my merit badge. However, did you realize that compasses have built-in limitations to them? For instance, a compass doesn't actually point you to true north. I didn't know that. Compasses don't point to true north. They actually point to magnetic north, which is slightly different from true north. And if that wasn't enough, compasses are radically affected by their environment. If I were on an airplane, because of the, the, the electromagnetic stuff going on around it, it would affect the reading. If I was on a ship, because of the amount of metal and electromagnetic energy around it, it would affect the reading of that compass. Even right now, I have a belt buckle on it. If this belt buckle has too much of a magnetic pull, it will affect the reading of my compass. And a good navigator knows this. And a good navigator is going to take those things into consideration when they are trying to get their bearing so that when they start walking, they're walking in the right direction. Because if he doesn't, if he just blindly follows his compass reading without taking into account that it's not pointing to true north but to magnetic north and without taking into account the the kind of situational, what, what they call magnetic deviation around them, the things that are affecting its reading, he is going to go completely the wrong direction. And in the same way, our consciences act like this. It is a tool God has given us for navigating life. However, it also has some limitations. Because our consciences don't point us to true north. They don't cry out for us to follow him. They cry out for us to follow the things that come naturally to our flesh. And unfortunately, if you go back to Genesis chapter 3, we see that our flesh has been corrupted by sin. And it leads us into hiding. And our, our, our consciences naturally gravitate towards the things our flesh yearn for. And sometimes those things are very, very different from what our Father God would want for us. I, I think of Paul, the way that he said it in uh, Romans chapter 7. Can we throw that up on the board, Mark? It's probably hard for you to read, but this is Paul who wrote about half of the New Testament explaining this natural bent in his heart. He says, I know that my selfish desires won't let me do anything that's good. Even when I want to do right, I can't. Instead, I do what I know is, instead of doing what I know is right, I do wrong. And so if I don't do what I know is right, it's no longer 
I that's doing these evil things. It's the sin that's living in me that's doing them and pulling me towards them. We have this natural bent away from our Father God, away from true north, and towards our own kind of sin north. But as if that wasn't enough, in the same way that a compass has affected my magnetic deviation, our consciences are affected by what we'll call spiritual deviation, by the things around us that affect and shape it. I mean, think about the way that you view the world and consider just how much of your worldview has been shaped by your family of origin. The things your family did affect you, for better or for worse, you, it has, has either pushed you towards certain things or maybe pushed you away from them. The experiences that you've had, the, the community of people that you're doing life with right now has a gravitational pull on your conscience. Even the wounds that have been inflicted upon your heart. All of those things shape the reading that you get from your conscience. And so let's just take a subject. Because there's a lot of gray areas, but because we're in church and you know this is one that we typically touch on, it is honestly one I've never actually talked about here. Let's talk about alcohol for a moment. Because this is one that affects us in one way or another in a lot of ways, and it tends to be one of those gray areas. And I would suspect that many of us in here have very differing perspectives on alcohol given the spiritual deviation of our lives, what we've experienced. For instance, we read the Bible and some of us come to the conclusion, well, Scripture automatically says to avoid that stuff because it's sinful and it's destructive and so I don't want to touch it at all. And other people say, no, there's freedom, baby. Don't worry about it. Because, it, 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 you know, Jesus turned water into wine and it was good wine. And Paul told Timothy to take a little wine with your water. So we don't need to be so uptight about it. Sure, Scripture also says don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, and said be filled with the Spirit. But it's not alcohol in and of itself. So where do we go with that? Well, for some of us, we've been raised in families where alcohol was just a natural part of how we did life, right? You saw your parents drinking a glass of wine at dinner, so it's natural for you to want a glass of wine or a glass of beer at dinner as well to relax. Or some of you in your families, you saw it very differently. It was a destructive thing in your family because it actually robbed from you a parent. In many ways, it it shaped and changed the way they interacted with your family. You saw the dark side of that. You saw the, the effects of the excess. And you say, you know what? I want nothing to do with that because it's so destructive. The, the, the circle of people that we run with, maybe in high school, you ran with a crew of people that just didn't party, weren't doing that. So for you, it's not something that you really need to be a part of your life. Or maybe you ran in a crew of people in college where alcohol was just a part of what you did. And you're like, what's the big deal? We can control ourselves. We can stop anytime we want. It's not a big deal at all. Maybe you've been affected positively. It's something that you just do to relax. Maybe you like the taste because you've developed the taste. I don't know how you've done that. I have not developed a taste for beer. I, but that's beside the point. Maybe, but maybe you have, and you're like, I love this stuff, and it is my drink of choice. Or maybe you go, you know what? I, I don't want to touch it at all. However it might be, we all have differing perspectives of this. And so I want us to recognize that all of our consciences will point in a slightly different direction on the topic of alcohol because of the spiritual deviation of our existence, of our life, of being raised. It's not foolproof where it all points in exactly the same direction. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, recognizing that our consciences are affected by our surroundings, we need to take into consideration the fact that they are not always going to give us the same readings. And we, I want us to recognize some of the limitations of our conscience. 
So I'm going to focus on three of them, and then a little bit later I'm going to focus on three different areas that or things that we can do to help strengthen and make sure our consciences are healthy so that they can do precisely what God has designed them to do. If you've got a Bible, I'd like for you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, there's probably one in a, underneath a seat in front of you. Because there, there are three states or three postures that our heart can be in that can negatively affect our conscience's ability to do what God designed it to do. The first state of our conscience that can be debilitating is what we'll call a weak conscience. Um, here's the reality. Our conscience is an integral part of, of navigating life, but it is not foolproof. Because a conscience can only determine your direction based upon the information it has. And if it has limited information, if it's lacking information, or it has false information, it will actually lead you astray. And so what Paul's about to be talking about here as we start reading in 1 Corinthians 8, he's writing to a, a, a group of Gentile Christ followers in the city of Corinth that is a massive pagan city. It is not in Jerusalem. It's over here in a, in a, a non-Christian area, but there's some believers that have started to come to know Jesus Christ in that area. And they're saying, we want to follow him. We want to submit to him in everything. And yet they have this conundrum because every time they want to have a nice party at their house, they want to have a meal. They want to have a good piece of meat and they go out into the marketplace. They know that the meat that they're buying at the marketplace probably was sacrificed to an idol at a pagan temple. And then the temple turned around and sold the meat so they could raise a little bit of capital for their, their temple. And they're saying, you know what? We know that we're not supposed to worship idols, but what should we do about the meat? Because we want to eat meat. We like meat. And Paul's addressing that. Because Paul recognizes this. He goes, listen, we know that Jesus Christ died to free us from the shackles of all this religious, like, rules. And so to say that you can't eat the meat because it's somehow been involved in a pagan sacrifice is unnecessary. Jesus Christ died for you, has freed you, and there's only one God. His name is Yahweh. He's the creator and sustainer of everything. He's the, he's the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the one who called us out of slavery. That's the only true God. Those idols are nothing. They're nothing but wood, metal, or stone. They have no power and no authority. So it's not a big deal. But he also recognizes that there are some within that group of Gentiles that he's writing to that do have an issue with it. And so he's writing specifically to them. In verse 7, we'll pick up the story. He says, not everyone possesses this knowledge that Jesus died to free us from the shackles of this. Some people are still so accustomed to, to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a God. And since their conscience is weak, since it's not fully developed, they don't fully understand the freedom that they have in Christ. It, the food that they're eating is defiled and it defiles them. But food does not bring us near to God, and nor are we worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. I think I massacred that last verse. Food does not bring us nearer to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. In other words, guys, there is freedom in Christ. But if your conscience is saying don't, and you disregard it, then you're sinning. 
even if your conscience is somehow weak. And so it's saying you don't have the freedom that everybody else supposedly does. So going back to this whole topic of alcohol, I was in a fraternity at UCI. And uh, while I was there, myself and a couple of other friends decided, let's start a Bible study for the fraternities and sororities at the school. And I don't remember most of those Bible studies that we led, but I remember one in particular. And it was the time that we discussed alcohol with a bunch of fraternity and sorority members. And I was trying to get to the point of helping them understand, listen, it's not about alcohol. It's about excess, right? Because anything in excess is destructive. If you have too much oxygen in your body, it will be poisonous. If you drink too much water, supposedly you can die. It's happened. You know, you eat too much food, you see the effects of that. Too much sleep, you're in a coma. Anything in excess I think so. I think that that's what happens if you're sleeping constantly, but maybe not. I'm not a medical doctor. I just figured that that kind of happens, right? Anything in excess is destructive. And so that's the point I was trying to get at. In order to kind of make that point, as I'm talking about alcohol, I reach into my bag. I go, I'm kind of thirsty, and I pull out a beer, and I crack it, and I begin to drink it, and the entire room goes silent. Now, this isn't because I'm drinking a beer in the middle of the thing. It's because... In two years of me being a part of that fraternity, none of them had ever seen me drink. And I'm not standing up here saying, I'm, oh, I'm so much holier than anybody. Quite honestly, I just didn't like the flavor. I didn't like the taste of it. I'd much rather pay for nachos and eat nachos than pay for a beer and have a beer, right? And also, I, <clears throat> I kind of, it was the thing that made me different in my fraternity. It's like, oh, I'm the guy who doesn't drink, and that's fine. So for two years... I'd been a part of this fraternity, and in that time, they had never seen me drink a drop of of alcohol. Now, all of a sudden, Eric is at Bible study drinking a beer. I will tell you that in the coming week, I talked to more of my fraternity brothers who weren't even there, coming up to me going, Wayman, you drank at Bible study? You won't drink with us at the party? And I was going, and it gave me the opportunity to have a conversation. So for me, it gave me the ability... To kind of explain, listen, it's not about the alcohol, it's about excess. I wasn't sinning by having a drink. But for me, I don't struggle with it. Because one drink pretty much stops at one drink. But if I continue to have more drinks, you know, it's, if, it's, if the first beer is not really just the last beer, it's the first step in, in getting blitzed, well, that's when it becomes a problem. And so I was able to have this conversation with my fraternity brothers. They're like, well, that's interesting. Are you going to drink with us next week? Probably not. But I'll drive you home, right? And so I will say, though, there was a lot of backlash because there were some people in my Bible study who had a real problem with the fact that I chose to do that. They're like, that is, that is not okay. And what happened is we began to have conflict with our philosophy of the freedom that we had, which was wonderful that it brought these things up. But I realized that some of us have a differing perspective on the freedom that we have in Christ. And the reality is that some of us actually don't have as much freedom as other people do. Because some of us in this room, when we start talking about alcohol, I can say, hey, listen, one beer, that's where it stops. One glass of wine, I have the freedom to have a glass of wine because I know that that's where it stops. It's not going to continue to two, three, four. But some of you don't have that freedom because for you it doesn't stop with one or two or three. For some of you, you've seen so much destruction in your life that you say, I don't want nothing to do with it. And for you, your conscience screams, no, when my conscience screams, if you want. 
And I will tell you guys, this is an area that's easy for me to talk about because I don't struggle with it. There are other areas you notice I'm not talking about up here right now because they are my struggle. And I am not going to just blindly give myself over to stuff. I'll be perfectly honest. I am never going to join Triple X Church and go to porn conventions to help people out of pornography because that is an area that, that the enemy attacks me in. So there's just being clear. I am not lily white. But this is an area that's not a stumbling block for me. But there are some of you in this room that it is a stumbling block. And so this brings us to the next stage that our conscience can be struggled or can be hobbled in. Because for some of the people in that position in Corinth, Paul's saying, you have freedom. However, for some of you, to eat the meat would be as if you are going against the cry of your conscience. And when we go against the cry of our conscience, even if it's wrong, even if it's from a weakened conscience that doesn't fully understand it, if your conscience says don't and you do, you sin. And when we do that, we wound our conscience. So let's keep reading here in verse 9. Be careful, however. Now, Paul is speaking to those who feel like they have freedom in eating this meat. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you, with all of your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. Because when you sin against them in this way, you wound their weak conscience. You give them a pressure to say, well, you know what? If Eric can drink a glass of wine, I can drink a glass of wine. Guys, I know that a glass of wine stops with a glass of wine for me. But I also recognize that if I were to drink in, in the presence of some of you in here, it could potentially cause you to go, well, I have the same freedom. Y'all have one too. But one doesn't stop there. And it goes to two and three and four. And now at that point, I've sinned against you by becoming a stumbling block. And Paul's saying, don't do it. Limit. Choose to limit your freedom to protect your brother or sister so that they won't wound their conscience. Verse 13, therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or my sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. Our consciences are a lot like nerve endings, right? They are God-given to tell us when we're harming either ourselves or someone else. And as with a nerve ending, think of these guys who are up here playing guitar. I wish I had that talent. I do not. So I appreciate people who do. And as they're up here playing, I know that plucking guitar strings that are metal creates a lot of friction and probably hurts. If I were to pick it up, it would hurt to do with what Terry does on that bass guitar. But he's been doing it for so long that what happens to those nerve endings? They've gotten calloused. They no longer feel the pressure and the friction. And in the same way, if we continue to ignore the cry of our hearts, if we continue to ignore the, the don't go there from our conscience, and we say, no, I'm going to go there anyway, eventually we begin to deaden our ears to that cry. We begin, be, become desensitized to our conscience's cry. We, become, we get a calloused conscience. And in the process, we put ourselves into danger. 
You know, you think about your nerves, your whole nervous system. It's kind of a, a, a wonderful gift God has given us that we feel pain. Do you realize that leprosy is such a damaging thing, not because your skin falls off, but because it kills your nerve endings, and then you accidentally have your foot in the fire and you don't realize it. Pain is an important gift from God. It tells you, A, that you're alive, and B, it lets you know when you're hurting yourself. And when we begin to ignore our conscience over and over and over again, we put ourselves into a position where our consciences can no longer do what God designed them to do. They can no longer help direct our steps. And at that point, we are pretty much just on our own. I skipped it earlier, but there's this, this quote from Billy Graham that I ran across this week that I absolutely love because I think there's so much truth in it. He said, our, many of us follow our consciences like we follow a wheelbarrow. We push it in the direction we want to go. Right? If you ignore your conscience long enough, or you have a weak conscience that you don't develop and strengthen, then ultimately, you're walking on your own saying, I got it. A a navigator who just blindly says, I follow my conscience, is going to ultimately go astray. Because at the end of the day, this thing is not doing what it was designed to do, because it has natural limitations, and our consciences have natural limitations. Does that make sense? Still with me? All right. So now the question. We have a wonderful gift from God in our conscience, but it's got some limitations. How do we make sure that our conscience is healthy and does what God designed it to do? Three things that I've been able to identify as I've gone through this. And by the way, guys, none of this stuff is from me. I read from a lot of people. I've been, I've been stealing blindly from lots of people who are way smarter than me in this because I am not an expert in this area. How do we follow our conscience? Because honestly, I would be conscience-stricken if I didn't say that, right? How do we follow our conscience? Number one, we need our conscience to be cleansed. And here's what I mean by that. A guilty conscience will not point us towards God. A guilty conscience will actually point us in the opposite direction and scream to us, run! Think of Adam and Eve. They had a conscience. God designed designed them with one. And the moment that sin and shame entered this world, it, ch- it changed the way that they think about themselves and it changed the way that they think about God. And their consciences didn't say, go to God, he can help. It said, run in the opposite direction, hide. And that's exactly what they did. And we see the effects of that even in our own lives, the way we hide from God and one another because our conscience says you are unclean, you are unworthy, and you need to simply hide Don't let anybody see the real you. So how do we get our conscience to a place where it is not terrified of our holy God? How do we make our conscience willing to point towards our true north? i got some good news for you in this. The vast majority of the work has already been done for us. By Jesus, some 2,000 years ago on the cross, Jesus gave his life not only to cover over our sins, but to cleanse our conscience so that those of us prodigals who had wandered far from home and basically thumbed our nose at our Father God would recognize that we could come home. We don't have to stay estranged from Him. And I don't want you to take my word for it. Can you throw up Hebrews 9 for just a moment? Listen to what the writer of Hebrews wrote. Because, know this, 
for the Israelites, the only way that they felt comfortable to come into God's presence was after they had sacrificed a goat or a bull or a lamb and let its blood symbolically pour out onto the ground as a reminder of their sin and their own death that they had deserved. And now they felt like, okay, now I can come in to God's presence. The writer of Hebrews says, well, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, how much more will it cleanse our consciences from the acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? Jesus' death on the cross not only took care of our sins, not just the ones we've done. Because let me ask you a question. Just think about this for a moment. How many of your sins had you already done when Jesus hung on that cross to die for you? None. And how many of your sins did he die to cover? All of them. Now, please don't hear this as me giving you carte blanche freedom to just go out and sin. Paul actually addresses that in Romans saying, listen, we don't have that freedom. It is for freedom that he has died to set us free. Freedom to follow him rather than freedom to run right back into the the pigsty that our flesh wants to drag us. He has freed us to come into our Father's presence and have relationship with Him. And so we need to rest in the sacrifice that He made for us. Have any of you guys ever been on a boat and you see the compass that sits there? It's kind of got a domed glass. I asked Don to bring me one. He goes, I don't trust you with that thing. (laughs) All right, smart man. You got your sextant back, man. But you you see them in that domed glass, and and those are really special because they're designed for being on the open sea where ships are being slapped by waves and rocking back and forth. And you know that they're kind of, it's a domed glass, and then it's filled with liquid, and then you have the compass floating within that. And that is a perfect analogy for our consciences and the way that they need to float in a sea of grace. Because the grace is the thing that holds it up. It is by grace we've been saved through faith, not through what we've done, not through our efforts, so that none of us can stand up and say, listen, I am a holy, holy man. No, 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 no. I am a sinner. If not for the grace of God that Jesus paid for on the cross, I would have no right to stand before you. And yet God is willing to use one such as me, and he is willing to use one such as you. God is willing to call us sinners saints, and more than that. He's willing to call us his sons and his daughters because he loves us that much. And this is how much he loves us. He sent Jesus to die for us. So let us stop running from him. Let us stop trying to clean ourselves up so we'll be worthy and just embrace the gift of grace that he paid for on the cross and come to him and recognize that our journey of relationship begins in grace and it will continue in grace until the day we go and be with him for eternity in grace. Without grace, we're lost. We're going to have to come back to that in a few weeks because we just need to be reminded of that. So the first thing, our consciences desperately need to be cleansed with a recognition that is by grace we've been saved. Secondly, if we've got weak consciences, then doggone it, we need to strengthen them. They need to be informed. They need to be trained up so that they're not so weak. God has given us a wonderful gift to help us navigate in our consciences. He's given them to every single person on this planet. But they were never designed to operate by their own strength and their own ability. Because a a conscience like that 
is a compass like this that you don't take into account all of the deviation of the things around it. You don't take into account the fact that it doesn't really point to true north. So we desperately need to have our consciences calibrated by the other tools that God has given us. First, we need to recognize that this becomes a better source for our moral understanding than our, so, our social media feed, right? It's not what other people think about and talk about that makes it what is true. It is what his word says. It's what, is, what he says to us as revealed in this that is imperative. I love what the, the, the writer of Psalms 119.11 said. I have hidden your word in my heart. Why? So that I will not sin against you. By hiding his word in our heart, by memorizing it, by reading it, we begin to understand better our Father God's heart. We begin to be more shaped by it, and our consciences begin to be informed, kind of like going to the gym and getting a workout. They become stronger. They have a better understanding of it for themselves, not just what your parents said, not just what your pastor says. Don't take my word for this, guys. Look it up. Do what the Bereans did and actually go to, go to Scripture to make sure that what I'm saying is accurate. And if it's not, trust this over me, please. The only way that I feel comfortable standing up here, guys, is knowing that you are willing to check what I'm saying and that I can feed you a fish without being afraid that you're going to choke on the bones. I need to know that I can hand you this truth, some of it which is filtered through my own perspective, and you're going to take it, and you, you, in having a conversation with God and looking it up in Scripture, are going to be able to recognize what is meat and is good for nourishment, and what is bones that will cause you to choke if you try to swallow that down and make it true for your own life. Does that make sense? All right. Because otherwise I'm going to be afraid and I'm not going to talk much up here. I'll just read Scripture and just kind of let the Holy Spirit figure it out. Um, secondly, we need to regularly spend time in his word. We need to regularly spend time in communion with him. You need to carve out space. That's why we've talked about this. Because if we're not, if we don't recognize his voice, that when he tries to speak to you, we're going to think it's just the burrito we had for dinner last night. We're going to think it's just our, uh, you know, it's, it's our little Jiminy Cricket. It's the, the demon and the angel on our shoulder, and we're not sure which one to listen to. We need to become discerning of what our our shepherd's voice sounds like so we can follow him. We need to be submitted to God's spirit that he has given us. God's spirit interacts with our spirit within us. It interacts with our conscience and it helps inform us. It helps take from God what he's trying to say to us. And when we're reading his word, it's his spirit that is unlocking this and saying, Eric, pay attention to this verse. I know you've read like a chapter, but this is the verse I need you to sit on for the next half hour. I need you to mull over this all day today. This one verse. You cannot serve both God and money. I just looked at that one, right? You can't do that. Stay with me, Eric. Notice that. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. That's what you need to hear. Everything else... That's great, and that'll speak to you at another time. But right now, this is the one you need. This is the seed I'm going to press into the soil of your heart right now. That's God's spirit interacting with us and our spirit and with our conscience and helping to direct it, helping to shape it, helping to grow it. And if we are submitted to that, if we allow God to inform our conscience, then it will do what he designed it to do. It will help us navigate in these gray areas. And then finally, after we have cleansed our conscience by accepting the gift of grace, 
and knowing we can come to him even though we, are mess- we have screwed up and will continue to screw up. And, and as we have in- allowed it to be informed and shaped and grown and strengthened by the other tools he's given us, then we need to protect our consciences. We need to protect. I love what Paul said in Acts 24. Can you throw that one up there? He said, I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. Now, I want you to pay attention specifically to that word strive. Because that word strive there is not a word that indicates this is something that just happens haphazardly. It's not accidental that we keep our conscience clear. No, it requires intentionality. It requires being willing to say no to our flesh when our flesh wants us to go one way and our conscience is saying, you probably shouldn't go that way. It requires a willingness to, to, to stop and look at our motivations before we actually act. I, I, want, I want to throw this one thing in here that doesn't fit into this hierarchy here. Um, our consciences are most difficult to hear when we're in the act of doing something. I, I remember very vividly one of my youth pastors saying, listen, Eric, if you're sitting on the edge of the bed wondering if you should go through the act of having sex with somebody, it's too late. You need to listen to your conscience, not when you're having the second drink. It's going to be really hard to hear in that moment when your friends are calling for another round and you're like, well, should I? You need to be listening to your conscience beforehand. You need to weigh your motivation. You need to kind of go, where am I at with this? And then after the fact, after, regardless of what happens, once you kind of come out of that, go, will you have the courage to actually look at the choices you made, the motivations that were underlying them, and the effects that they had, even if it wasn't your intention? Just this week, uh, God brought to mind... um, an interaction I have with a friend. I love to goof around with people. And, and so I tend to, when, when somebody kind of says, you know, I'm uncomfortable about this, I tend to lean in a little bit and razz them a little bit because it's my love language. And I receive it well from you, I hope. Um, so I was doing this, and I, and I thought nothing of it because we're, we're buddies. He understands me. And then uh, as I was uh, just kind of having some quiet time with God, I kind of felt like this check in my spirit, like that may have been misinterpreted. And I didn't know. And so I I kind of wrestled with, oh, he knows, he's fine. You know what? No, I need to make a phone call. So I made a phone call. And it turns out it was fine. And he understood. And he thought thought nothing of it. I was picking up on some other stuff that was going on internally for him. And I was interpreting that as it was directed at me. But in that moment, I was obedient to my my conscience saying, you probably need to lean a little, little bit here. And I'm glad that I was obedient to it because most of the time I'm not. Most of the time I go, ah, it's fine. I don't want to have that awkward conversation. They knew, you know. So anyway, we need desperately, our conscience is a very important tool that God has given us, but we need to protect it. It's like nerve endings. The more we disregard the cry of them, the more they're going to become deadened and the less they are capable of doing what God designed them to do. They need to be strengthened by the things God has given us to do. And they need to be cleansed by the knowledge that we are his sons and daughters. 
and we are saved by grace and not by our own efforts. And so I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. And I can't think of a better way of celebrating the truth of what Jesus did on the cross than by taking communion. Something that we try to do here every month and a half or so. This is just a tangible way for us to remember the sacrifice that Jesus made that declares to us that we are not sinners that have to stay far away and estranged for him. But we are sons and daughters who have been cleansed and welcomed home and he loves us more than we could ever possibly fathom. Communion is a tangible reminder of his love. And so, in a moment, you guys are going to come forward and you're going to take some bread and some, some juice here. And by the way, if you're visiting us today and you're not really sure if you believe in any of this, you're just here, then do not feel obligated to come and take these elements. This is a tangible reminder for those of us who say, I need him and my identity and my trust is founded upon him alone. And if you're still wrestling with that, then here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask Jeff, Pastor Jeff, is right back there in the back. If you have questions about this or you're just not sure, I'd ask you to go and talk to him before you come and take communion. Or rather than taking communion, I'd much rather you go and talk to him and just kind of start working out, where am I with God? But if you are here today, and maybe you're feeling like, you know what, I don't deserve to be here. Because you've got a pretty guilty conscience and there's something that you carried in with you that, that quite honestly you're feeling kind of convicted about and you just want to run. And you're wondering, why did I show up today? This is an opportunity for you to say, you know what? My identity is not dictated by what I have done, but rather by what he has done. So you're going to come and you're going to keep a piece of bread that symbolizes his body that he gave as a sacrifice for your body. And you're going to get a small cup of juice that symbolizes the blood that was poured out on the cross to cover over your life, his lifeblood for our lives so that we can live the life that is truly life. So we're going to sing this song together. And as you feel so inclined, I'm going to invite you to come forward. Fippers, can you come up here?